Amen. I'm going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 through 25. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. This is God's word. And not just for... The, uh, there it is. Not just for the uh, early Christmas presents and, um, yeah, and the ugly sweater parties and taking pictures on Santa's lap and all that fun stuff. But I, I love... <laughs> I love Christmas because of what it represents. And um, this year we were lighting uh, the Advent tree with our kids and reading through some of the, uh, the Advent reading. And um, I, was, I was reminded of how shocking the message of Christmas really is. Um, we were reading this, uh, this point when Mary first gets visited by an angel. And he tells her, he says, you're going to bear a son. And this is one of the things he says, the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Your son will be king of Jacob's people forever, and his kingdom will never end. Now... If you were raised in church like I was, that can sound like a bunch of religious Christmas noise, but not for Mary, right? If you're a first century Jew under the heel of the Roman government, there's got to be a better stomping, there it is, yeah, I'm stomping my right foot now. Um, if, if you're under the heel of the Roman government in first century Palestine, it, this is a political statement, right? This is the kind of statement that can get you killed, right? And it almost did, right? You guys remember Herod coming after baby Jesus and killing all the boys 
and they barely escape. In fact, it actually did with another Herod. Several years later, it got Jesus killed. And so from its inception, Christianity has been subversive to power structures and to politics because at its core was this belief that there's a new kingdom and a new king that is here. And there's this audacious claim at Christmas that this little baby born bloody and crying in a manger will actually make all things new. In his name, all oppressions shall cease. I love that line. So from the beginning, Christ followers have had to wrestle with politics because there's huge implications if you believe that's true. Like, how do you, how do you vote when God is your king, but you also have this earthly king, right? Or this earthly democracy. Or If I'm a citizen of heaven, but I'm also a citizen of Merca, how do I, how do I vote? What, what do we do here? There's this tension. So today, we're going to talk about politics and religion at the same time. So just to prep you guys for the Christmas table, you know. <laughs> um, and we're, we're going to do this not because it's easy, but because it's hard, because politics is difficult. It's a terrifying topic. Me, I get so tense. I hate on my iPhone, I have a thing where I swipe right and, and uh, the news feed comes up. And you just start to avoid it like, oh, man, another headline, another thing with this and that. And it starts to, like, it, it just becomes this, this mountain of negativity in your life. So you just don't swipe that way. Don't watch TV. Avoid it all because it's so tense. Anybody feel that way? I remember last, uh, last year around this time, I was sitting at a lunch table with some friends and um, politics came up, and I think if you weren't sitting there um, at the table listening and you were just watching, you would see the tension just in the body language, right? And you could hear it in the tone of voice and the way the facial expressions begin to change, and they're going, and they obviously have different sides on this particular issue. Well, it was a person, actually. Uh, there was, I don't know if you guys know, uh, last election cycle, there was a particularly divisive person that was running. So anyway, so they were both talking about this person. And, um, and as they're going at it, like, I'm just like getting more and more tense. And I'm so thankful that I'm not in that moment. I'm just kind of hanging back and quietly eating. <laughs> Got my own show going on right here. But then they turn and they look at me and they go, well, Vince, what do you think? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Don't do that to me. Why did I feel that way? Why do we feel that way when that kind of stuff happens? I think it's because we're aware of something. We're aware that political discussions can actually destroy relationships and trust. Have you ever, how many of you, if you're really honest, have you ever judged someone else because you just assumed there was no good reason for someone to vote differently than you? I'm guilty of that. Yeah, yeah. How many of you have ever vilified a proposition or a politician and painted them in the worst possible light. Uh, like you kind of knew you disagreed, but then you kind of started taking it to the next level to the point where you're like, they're evil, evil. They're just, <laughs> that's, that's what politics can do to us, right? Politics can bring out the worst in us. Relevant Magazine said this in an article, and I love sharing Relevant Magazine because it makes me feel hip. Um, but they, I think they really nailed this point. They said this, political discourse is 
the Las Vegas of Christianity. The environment in which our sin is excused, hate is winked at, fear is perpetuated, and strife is applauded. Go wild, Christ follower. Your words have no consequences here. Jesus doesn't live in Vegas. So the question today is, how can we engage in political process in a way that seeks to be countercultural and, and represent Jesus and, and be a credible witness to God's love? So we're going to look briefly at this passage from Scripture that will show us uh, a great example of one of God's representatives and how he engages in political discourse and enters into this mess of politics and social issues. Now, we just finished a series on Judges. And um, Samuel is literally the next thing that follows after Judges, right? Israel had no king. Here comes Samuel. He's the final judge. And then Samuel's going to be the one to anoint the first king of Israel and the second king of Israel, right? So, so Samuel is a really pivotal issue uh, person here in, in the text. So this is essentially us picking up the story where we left off a couple of weeks ago. If you remember, throughout the story of Judges, there was a phrase that repeated. It was in the beginning, it was in the end, it was throughout. And it said this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's this chaos going on in Israel in Judges. And everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. They're in this cycle that we talked about over and over for the past few months where they forget God, and they forsake Him, and they run over here and start worshiping idols. And then God removes his protection and the nations that are worshiping those idols around them come in and they take them over. And, and Israel st- suddenly realizes, oh man, these idols can't save us. We need God. So they turn back to God and he sends a deliverer, a judge to help rescue them, right? You guys remember this cycle that's been going on over and over? And uh, Israel is finally at this point where they're like, guys, I think the only way we're going to get out of this cycle is we need a king. We need a king and one we can see, one we can hear, one we can follow. So in this text, early in this transition from the era of judges to the era of kings, Samuel is discussing a politically charged topic of having a human king in place of God as king. And this is an argument that's been going on for five chapters. started in chapter 8. And the argument was basically the people of Israel saying, hey, uh, we want a king. All the other cool kids have one. Why don't we get a king? We need a human king. And Samuel says, yeah, but guys, God is your king. You have, you have God. Why, why do you want a human king? Yeah, we kind of want a human king still. But you guys don't understand. If you get a human king, they're going to lead you away from the ways of God. They're going to take advantage of you. They're going to do all kinds of horrific things, and you're not going to be able to stop them. Yeah, but we kind of want a king anyway, right? So that's, that's what's been going on. Their, their heels are dug in. They want what they want. They've found their side of this issue, and they've planted their feet, and they're not moving, right? And this, this breaks God's heart because the problem isn't that they need a king. They have a king. God's their king. The problem is they keep ignoring and forgetting the king they have. The world around them seems more tangible than their God. The the political and social issues seem near while God seems distant. And instead of living the ways that he's called them to live, they've just started selecting and choosing to live however feels right 
in their heart. Whatever seems right in their own eyes. Their heels are dug in. They want what they want. What we see here is that people were looking for the king to provide something that God is supposed to provide. And I think, wow, I've seen that in our day, right? You see that when, whenever you, um, I don't know, fo- follow like uh, news shows or watch political pundits. Like it's a standard argument that Republicans make against Democrats. Republicans say, Democrats look to the government to do things it can't do, right? But then Democrats are on the other side, and they say almost the same thing. They say, Republicans look to the invisible hand of free market capitalism to do things it can't or shouldn't do. So in this story, Samuel goes to God, and he complains. He's like, you won't believe these people. They're driving me crazy. It's so depressing. It's so infuriating. And God says to him, Samuel, Samuel, look, they aren't rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And so God says something startling. God tells Samuel, go ahead and give the people a king. Right? So we track in. The people reject God. God stays with them, even though he confronts them. And Samuel tells them in verse 13, they'll get a king. Verse 19 says what happens next. Once they finally get what they want, then guess what? They feel guilty. Okay. Let's read this together. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil of asking for ourselves a king. So God lets them have what they want and then they feel guilty. Ever happened to you? So verse 19, they come clean, they confess their sins. Sometimes this happens to me, right? We get that sinful thing we want you actually feel guilty. And the people ask Samuel, please pray for us. Talk to God for us. So what's Samuel do? They've done everything wrong. They voted the wrong way. They posted the wrong thing on Facebook. Completely ignored his advice. What do most people do when things don't go our way? Yeah. Yeah. We complain. We get bitter, don't we? Do you guys remember last election cycle how many people were going to move to Canada? Yeah, or Mexico, yeah. If he gets in, if she gets in, I'm out of here, right? We're going to have a mass exodus to Canada. But what does Samuel do? I'll give you a hint. He doesn't move to Canada. He actually images God in his response, and he pursues relationship. Let's look at the highlights of uh, verses 20 through 24. He says, do not be afraid, even though you messed up. Don't turn away from God and chase empty things, but serve the Lord your God with all your heart, for the Lord will not forsake his people. I love that. And absolutely, of course, I'll stay with you. I'll pray for you. I'll help you. I'm in. I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed. Even though you did this wrong thing, I'm sticking with you. I'm going to teach you what is good and what is right. In verse 25, but if you still do wickedly, you'll be swept away, both you and your king. That response shocks me. Right, Because I expected at the end of this discourse, once the people were like, yeah, we did something bad, Samuel to say, yeah, I told you, okay, let's get rid of the king and let's go back to God being king. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't denounce politics. Instead, he says, life can still work out with God. Here's the key. You need to put God first. You need to obey God. Without a king, God is your king. But with a king... You still need to put God first because God is still your ultimate king. Amen? 
So you have this ultimate king, this ultimate kingdom you're living for. How do we balance that tension? I would suggest that here's a principle here. Honor the government you have, but put your ultimate hope in God. That's, that's Samuel's resolution. He disagreed with getting a king. He was right to disagree with getting a king, but Samuel doesn't shun them. He doesn't guilt them. He doesn't reject them. He rolls up his sleeves, and he enters into the messy compromise of politics. And, and sure, it's a, it's a non-ideal political situation. So Samuel begins to talk with them about how to turn this non-ideal situation into one that will honor God and bring about a blessed life. Right? It's like, hope's not lost, guys. We can still make the best of this. Right? But we need to honor God and put him first. So, so what's the point? In this verse, we see God's heart for us, don't we? Like, look at this verse. When we push God away, what's he do? God graciously stays with us. Didn't we see that through our judges too? Like the people would totally reject God and he might remove his protection. He might allow some trouble to show up in their life for a moment so they turn back to him. But the, the moment they did, what happened? He was right there. He was waiting. He was always present with his grace for them. When we push God away, God graciously stays with us. And in this political situation, they literally push God away. We don't want you, God. We don't want you to be our king. And yet God stays with him. And that's good news. That's good news for my heart. When I look at my life at how many times I've pushed God away to do my own thing, to be the ruler of my own life. Anybody? Yeah. As his people, it's, it, it's not only that he'll never leave us and forsake us, right? It's good news for us, but it's also good news for how you and I are called to live in this broken and hurting world. God does to you what he wants to do through you. Amen? So it's not only God's heart, it's this new heart that God has put in us as his people. God wants us to image him and stick with others in difficult, sticky, and messy political discussions, especially with those with whom we disagree. Yeah? Got quiet. I'll throw some jokes in. I'll, I'll throw more. Now, how do you do this? I, especially right now. Like, there's a reason it's quiet in the room. If we're, if we're honest, our current cultural climate, that seems impossible. It was tough a year ago when I preached this sermon. And by the way, I got, I've, I've never been asked to preach a sermon again so many times, so that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm just preaching the same sermon. But... Um, it's, it's impossible because so many of us, and I say us, have our heels dug in, and it seems just easier to avoid the discomfort and to unfriend that person and surround ourselves with people who think like us. But how, how do we learn to not separate our faith in our politics, but to bring our faith into our politics in a way that will build unity in God's church and bring blessing to our city? That's the question. So that's what we're going to spend a majority of the rest of our time on today. How can we practically enter into the messy compromise of politics? How can we encourage people inside our church and outside the church? How can we gracefully and lovingly point people to Jesus in the middle of this mess? And this is huge because if we're actually going to live up to our name and be a new city, we've got to show people that everybody from this city, regardless of what side of the aisle they're 
they're from, is welcome here to have a safe place to have these kinds of discussions and explore their faith. And if we're not busy creating that environment, we got to ask ourselves if we're actually trying to build God's kingdom. Right? So to do this, number one, you need to understand other perspectives and foster real dialogue. Yeah, Tim Keller is my patron saint. And, <laughs> and he wrote a book called The Reason for God. And this is one of my favorite quotes from that book. And uh, I'm, I'm going to quote it and just work through it. He says this in regards to understanding other perspectives and fostering real dialogue. He says, There needs to be understanding, sympathy, and respect for the other side that did not exist before. Then people will rise to the level of disagreement rather than simply denouncing one another. Guys, there's a huge difference between disagreeing and denouncing. Huge, right? Denouncing is when you're, you're vilifying someone for their perspective. You're not even listening. Have you ever done that before? I mean, I mean not, not even just in political discussions, but just in anything. You're not even listening to somebody's other perspective. You're just like picking out the bits and pieces you can disagree with and waiting for your chance to pounce on them. The ambush conversation. Yeah. I remember that used to be how I did apologetics when I was 15. Go out in the street and like witness to people about Jesus. You're just waiting like for that false doctrine so you can pounce on it. So loving. So great. <laughs> it's called denouncing. It's dismissing without truly listening. But Keller is telling us we need to rise from denouncing to a level of disagreeing. How? Write this on your heart. This happens when each side has learned to represent the other's argument in its strongest and most positive form. Have you ever done that? Especially, no. I mean, not even in my marriage do I practice that. Wow. Seeking first to understand before being understood. Like, think about that. Not just politics. When you disagree, are you more concerned with building people and building relationships or with building your own ego and your own identity? Are you more concerned with proving you're right and shutting the other side down or patiently walking with those who disagree with you, right? Are you more concerned with holding your positions in humility that the gospel provides or shoving them down somebody's throat or just cutting somebody off when they disagree? The art of humble inquiry is something that we've lost. We just wait to build our case against people. And Keller says we actually need to seek understanding and represent the other's argument in its strongest and most positive form. He says, only then is it safe and fair to disagree with it. Are you serious right now? I got people worshiping in the back. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. It's rare that I'm speechless. Woo! So Keller says, only when you understand your opponent's argument 
well and you can represent it in its best possible light, is it even safe to try to disagree with it? In other words, it's not safe to disagree with caricatures, right? You guys know caricatures? I'm going to New York. We're going to go hang out uh, this holiday season with my in-laws and around Central Park, you have all the artists sitting there waiting for their money from tourists. And um, I don't know, you guys ever get a caricature painted of you at one of those places? So if you have like ears that may be a little larger than normal, and then like you see the painting when they're done, they turn it around, it's like two ears, it's a little mouse face. Or, or if you have a larger nose than most people, like you're just a nose, that's all you are. You blow up the part that stands out, right? You, you just create it all around that one thing. And, and that's what we do with these kinds of arguments. We build simplistic versions of the other side's arguments that don't actually represent their hearts or their depth of thought. And when we do that, you know what that does? That shapes people who are unintelligent and uninformed. It shapes people who don't understand the other side, who don't even care what the other side has to say anymore. They just want enough information to make the other side look stupid. That's called pride. It's not the character of God. The hard part, too, I think, for us is in our society, there are evangelists in our culture that are hell-bent on presenting their opponents' arguments in the worst and, and weakest lights. You know what they're called? Talk show hosts. Get the political pundits, right? And, and, and you know, if you want to run a successful talk show, because there's more and more of them nowadays, and I figured out it's a simple formula. This is all you have to do. You find the most polarizing people on any topic. They don't represent 99% of the population, but they are just crazy. And you get this guy and that person together, and here's what you do. You get them in the same room. And you throw out, like, the tinder's all there and the fire. All you need is one little match. And you throw out one question, you just let them go at it. Like, like dogs on a bone, right? And then you say, yeah, yeah, huh? Feel the fire, feel the fire, keep going. And then you cut to commercial and you sell soap. That's what you do. You'll have a successful show. You can sell so much soap that way. Lexuses, whatever you want. And the problem... Sorry. The problem is, like, that used to be entertainment in our society. But it started to influence the way we actually talk to each other. Right? How, many, how many of you have seen that? Everybody is their own political pundit for whatever they think. But that's not what we're called to do. Ephesians 4, 2. Listen, just one of a uh, hundred scriptures I could pull out on how we're supposed to treat one another. Be completely humble. And gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. We are called to be humble and patient, wise, learners, learning from others, asking honest questions that seek to understand and holding our positions in humility. As my dad used to say, Vince, you got two ears and one mouth. Use them accordingly. Listen. Listening is a lost art. Next time you're in any disagreement, just anything about any topic in your marriage with your kids, if you're in a disagreement, take a second and ask yourself, am I truly seeking to understand the other side and their heart? If we do that, Tim Keller says, that achieves civility in a pluralistic society, which is no small thing. 
I've been in environments where if I wasn't voting Democrat, I wasn't a Christian. I've been in other environments where if I wasn't voting Republican, I wasn't a Christian. Are there any Christians? Are they all libertarian? <laughs> Honest question. <laughs> Denouncing the other side doesn't help. Understanding it does. So, number one, you need to understand other perspectives and foster real dialogue. Then, number two, you need to understand that both conservatives and liberals reflect aspects of God's kingdom. For instance, think about the problems in our nation. What's broken? Is it individuals or society? <laughs> Both. Yeah. And Republican policies tend to focus on individuals. And Democratic policies tend to focus on society. And God cares about both. So we're going to look briefly, very briefly, with a survey, like a 20,000-foot view over some of the differences of these two sides. And I couldn't begin to do it justice in the time I have, but... We're going to dive in and look at the good and bad on both sides. You guys ready? Let you know how it goes after. Um, first, the good. Um, the left tends to focus on social justice, right? While the right tends to focus on individual rights. The left tends to focus on the community at large first, while the right tends to focus on the self and nuclear family first. Which one of these reflects God's heart? Yeah, both. The left expects, uh, this is from Reason for God, I love this. The left expects citizens to be legally accountable for their use of their wealth, but totally autonomous in other areas such as personal morality. The right expects citizens to be held legally accountable in other areas of, per, or in areas of personal morality, but totally autonomous in the use of their wealth. Which one of these does God care about? Both, Yeah. And on both sides, the solutions, if we're honest, are problematic. Why? Because they're full of people. And people got problems. People aren't perfect, right? So the left trusts big government and the right trusts big business. And big business is full of people who are imperfect and can just run over the needs of others because they care about bottom lines. And, you know, the other side... Big government is full of people who are sinful and selfish apart from God's grace, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, right? That is who we are, prone to seek self-advantage. I think we're looking for any opportunity to laugh at this point to cut the tension. Anyway, okay. So big business is full of imperfect people. The left policy's ideal is basically that the government should be gracious. We have to take care of people in need. Does God care about that? Yeah, yeah. But the right policies, ideal, is people should also be responsible. We need to help them learn to take care of themselves. Does God care about that? Yeah, yeah. So liberal Christians tend to believe the kingdom of God as earthly and this-worldly, like we want to see the kingdom come to earth. And uh, conservative Christians tend to believe that the kingdom of God is heavenly and otherworldly, which is right. Both. Yeah. The, the picture of the end of days when, when Christ returns is this beautiful picture of a new heaven and a new earth, and they're coming together above and below, meeting as one, right? Again, this is a simplistic intro about the good and bad on both sides. So, so what's some of the bad? Well, conservatives have weaknesses in their policies, 
and liberals have weaknesses in their policies. I know you guys know that, but what I'm trying to tell you is that your side also has weaknesses in its policies. <laughs> Democrat policies can be abused by people who don't want to work. Republican policies can be abused by people who don't want to share. Both describe my six-year-old. I'm not sure what political party he's going to be when he gets older. <laughs> so both sets of policies can be abused, and they are abused, right? With democratic policies, large government tends to be inefficient. Programs aren't always run efficiently, right? They lack accountability. So you build this larger system, and the, more, the, the larger it gets, the more subject to abuse it can be right? Both by the people who are receiving the benefits and by the people who are working in the system. And governments get so big that there's all these layers for oversight and accountability, right, to keep the government doing right. And so, sure, businesses also struggle to stay efficient, but because government can get so big and so large, it's not required to turn a profit, the fiscal accountability needed to keep them acting wisely is often absent. So, so what's the solution? Well, we raise taxes, and then we raise taxes, so, you know, the cycle just continues, right? We need more people to oversee this stuff. But on the other side, with Republican policies, small government often leaves the poor behind. Many people fall through the cracks and are severely disadvantaged. I'll just, I'll just denounce it right now and say it's wrong, it's immoral. John Perkins says it this way, and John Perkins is a personal hero of mine, man. If you, if you have not read John Perkins or followed his life, you should. Um, check him out. But he says this, free enterprise is handicapped by a serious flaw, man's greed. Both biblical history and American history remind us repeatedly that greedy men will use economic freedom to exploit, to profit at the expense of others. Employee, employers pay employees as little as possible in order to maximize their own profits rather than treating their employees' economic interests as being as important as their own or to be thoroughly Christian, more important than their own. Advertisers create markets for products which no one needs, not from a motive of servanthood, but out of greed, pure and simple. Businesses measure their successes primarily by their financial profits, not by how well they glorify God and serve people. What a far cry we are from a truly Christian economy. I think he has a point there. The best Republicans don't hide the evils of capitalism. I mean, it's right there in the name, capitalism, right? That's the thing. We're going for money, and that can become an idol really easily, right, in our society. They simply say, guys, I think this is the best option we have right now. So, you know, let's stick with this until there's better alternatives. And, of course, if you believe that, that's an opinion that is going to have to be established by facts. You have to prove that the economy actually gets better and benefits everyone, if businesses grow, it's not, it's not an airtight argument is what I'm saying. Okay, we tracking? And this kind of honesty about one's own strengths and weaknesses is vital because too many people are highlighting the strengths of their side and the evils of the other side. And the point is this, as we gain understanding, we begin to realize it's okay. It's okay to admit your tribe's weakness. In fact, we should get really good at it. We should become experts at, sh at seeing our own weaknesses. Today, as we look at this divided, tribalistic America, let's consider that it may say less about the issues out there that divide us and more about our own brokenness. 
Jane Lampman says it this way, and I love this quote. The gospel teaches us that the line separating good and evil runs not between nations or political parties, but inside every human heart. So if what I'm saying is true today, then both sides have noble intentions and both sides have broken solutions. And many of us have taken the bait and joined a fight against one another instead of fighting the evils out there. So what should the church look like? What should New City look like? One of my goals, one of my hopes, is that both sides would be represented in a church like this. Living in community, both liberal and conservative Christians who are quick to admit the faults of their party and the faults of their perspective and quick to point out the good in the other party. That's the third way of Jesus in politics. Be quick to admit your faults. Take the political log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of someone else's eye. If New City is going to be truly countercultural and show the world the ways of Jesus, our church should be filled with people from every side of the aisle, every group, every tribe, every nation. Amen? Amen. And we should be full of love and grace for each other. Like, Imagine that. Get, just get a picture of that. A group of people who disagree on social and political issues and yet are humble and eager to learn from each other. Believing the best about each other. When in doubt, giving each other the, the benefit of that doubt. Right? Because we know that this is family and we love one another and we're for one another even before we are for our own opinions. We need conservatives and we need liberals committed to this. But we need to be committed to one thing more than all that. The last thing you'll need to be convinced of is that politics can't save our nation. Only the gospel can. Yeah. Uh, I love this, another long quote, but there's a lot to cover. You know, we're going to talk about politics in 30 minutes. <laughs> we need some quotes, okay? So, I need help here. I love this quote, though. For the political activists, we must confront the realization that there is no political solution for the challenge we face. Laws won't do it. But I do not say this as a prelude to an exhortation to give up. No, we must not give up. We were told to teach all nations how to obey every word that Jesus left to us. But before that can happen, we must baptize them. People aren't ready to be baptized without a spirit-anointed proclamation of the gospel such that the nation turns in mass and bows down before the Lord in true humility. There is no other way to save our nation. No salvation without a Savior, and there's only one Savior. His name is, everybody said? Yeah. In other words, guys, while politics is no Savior, politics desperately needs to be saved. The other day, I... um. One of my favorite things to do in the morning. I'm on this diet that Ramiro's got me on. And so I'm doing intermediate fasting in the mornings. I'm drinking coffee. So I figure if I'm going to have just coffee in the morning, it might as well be good. So my kids got me a Chemex uh, for Father's Day. And I, so I, I've got the coffee perfectly weighed and the temperature of the water. I'm sitting there like a mad scientist in my kitchen trying to get a good pot of coffee, right? And I got to take my dog out, Levi, because my kids had stayed the night at my mom's house that night. And so I, uh, I, I'm like, dude, I'm going to run out of coffee halfway through walking him, so I'm just going to pour it all into one cup. So I do that, and now I'm trying to go out the door. I've got my giant cup of coffee, 
and the dog on a leash on my arm, and I got to open the door, so I put the coffee in this hand, and I go to open the door. You guys know where that's going, huh? The whole cup, the whole pot, 15 minutes of grinding and temperatures and weighing coffee. Oh, God. What? Okay, so what's my point? I put the whole pot of coffee in one little cup. And I think, I'll try. Some of us have done that, right? We've put, we've poured the whole pot of coffee into, into one cup. We've put all of our hope into something that can fail, can easily slip out of our hands, right? And we can, we can lose it. In fact, we're not in control of it. Anyway, politics was never meant to be the cup that holds all your hope, right? Only one cup was built for that. And if you, if you get how I feel, I get emotionally distraught. I get hot and bothered about the state of politics in our country. And I even, at times, if I'm not careful, in my heart, I begin judging or demonizing or caricaturing people and dividing in my own heart and surrounding myself with people who are easy to agree with because they think like me. If we're doing that, then we might be putting too much hope in politics to save us. So what do we do? Well, there's a Savior Let's look at Jesus briefly for an example and then for what he did for us. Jesus' politics. Jesus didn't pick a side in the political factions of his day. And there were political factions. We talked about this last year. Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes. You got four main political parties in Jesus' day. And they're all trying to edge him up. They're all trying to either get him in or or make him pick a side, right? And... um, and, and what's he do? Number one, what do we see Jesus do? He fully engages with each group in meaningful discourse. Think about this. To the conservatives, Jesus looked like a raving liberal. He's preaching the gospel about loving the poor. He's seeking justice for the marginalized. He's telling stories where the, the hated Samaritans are the heroes of the story. And he pays his taxes to a corrupt government. What is he doing? But to the liberals, he looks like a conservative because he's healing those who are connected with the Roman government and the ruling class. He gave high praise to a Roman soldier for his exemplary faith in Matthew 8. He hangs out with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, right, by night, even though Nick was trying to hide. You know, he, he, he did that. He eats with sinners, right? But he also challenges them and calls them away from their immorality. He doesn't just excuse their immorality. He loves them there, but he doesn't leave them there, right? Tracking? So, so they're trying to peg Jesus. I, I, one quick story of this is when they try to get him to, like there's one of these hotly debated things because they're under the heel of the Roman government. And as they're there, they're, it, one of the big topics of the day, it's hot, like taxes. Do we pay taxes to them or not? You know, who's our king and we're a kingdom, but they're oppressing us and all that stuff. So they come to Jesus and they say, what do you think about taxes? Right? Ready? Go. Political pundit style. They're expecting him to pick a side. And what's he do? You guys remember? He says, bring me a coin. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. I'm like, shoot. You can't peg him. Like, he's just, he always goes this other way. What's up with Jesus? Number two, he calls followers from every walk of life and political ideology to be informed by the gospel and bring change to the world around them. For instance, Matthew. Matthew writes the book of Matthew, right? In Matthew chapter 10, he identifies who some of the disciples are who are hanging out with Jesus. 
And he identifies himself as a tax collector. And one of the other guys in the group was Simon. Anybody know what he did? Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Right? So that's significant because tax collectors worked for the government. And zealots kind of worked against the government. If you know the stories about the zealots, like their oath was if you ever catch a Roman soldier and nobody else is around, cut their throat. They're carrying knives around. They're ready to overthrow the Romans at any time. So you, you might say Matthew was a left-wing big government guy who made a career out of collecting taxes for the state. And Simon was a right-wing small government guy who thought the state should keep out of people's business. But despite their huge opposing political viewpoints, Matthew and Simon are friends. And as you read this gospel, Matthew, it's almost like he wants us to know. Think about it. Matthew's emphasis on a tax collector and a zealot living in community suggests something, doesn't it? It suggests a hierarchy of loyalties, especially for Christians. Our loyalty is to a king and his kingdom, a king who was born in a manger, a king who we're remembering this holiday season, right? And that kingdom is it's it's an already but not yet tension. Like he came and established it and he's gonna come back one day and consummate it. And in between, we're in this kind of tension. Until that day, how do we live? We lovingly and humbly engage full of hope in that day. And that brings change. C.S. Lewis says it this way. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next. The conversation, or I'm sorry, the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade and left their mark on earth. All of them did this precisely because their minds were occupied with the heavenly kingdom. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they've become so ineffective in this world. Ouch, C.S. Lewis. Is our loyalty to a king and his kingdom and if so, that loyalty must always exceed our loyalty to earthly agendas, political or otherwise. Amen? Ooh. It's like eggshells and landmines all over the place here. I think, honestly, we should feel more at home with people who share our faith but not our politics than we do with people who share our politics but not our faith. And if that isn't our experience, then maybe we are rendering unto Caesar what is God's. Our first allegiance. People from different political persuasions can experience in a beautiful unity. But there's only one way to do it. How? 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 And the only way I think we can do that is if our first allegiance is to Jesus as our king. And if everything else is secondary. That's the only way. Paul says that on the cross, Jesus removed, even killed the dividing wall of hostility between different people. People from the far left, people from the far right, and everywhere in between in Ephesians 2.16. And he says he, he did this, right, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. If there's hostility in your heart towards somebody of a different persuasion, you got to ask yourself if that part of your heart has submitted to the gospel yet. If you hold hostility toward other believers who differ in opinion from you, you are probably struggling to believe the gospel and you've separated your faith from your politics or maybe made, faith, or made politics your faith. 
Wherever the reign of Jesus is felt, differences are embraced and even celebrated as believers move toward one another in unity and peace. And thirdly, here's what Jesus does. Jesus enters into this volatile political landscape, much like Samuel. You feel like today's cultural climate is tense? Try being a first century Jew under the heel of the Roman Empire. It was like tinder, just ready for a match to drop and blow up. And Jesus enters into that. Jesus loves people, right? Just like Samuel. Samuel and Jesus both enter into this messy compromise of politics, and they love people, and they point them to God as king. But I think if we look at the life of Jesus, he goes a bit, bit further than Samuel does. Jesus is the good and perfect Samuel, who is a ruler and ushers in a new kingdom, but he not only tries to redeem this broken system, but he takes on the brokenness of this system on his own back. He actually brings redemption through his own atoning death. Je Jesus, think about this, was alienated in our place while we were his enemies so that we could draw near to our enemies and love them as God did for us in Christ. Jesus allowed himself to be painted as a caricature. The sign said, King of the Jews. They put on the crown of thorns. They put on the robe on his back and made fun of him and laughed and mocked and demonized him so that as we were forgiven, we could be freed, both from being mocked and caricatured and demonized by our opponents and finding our identity in that, but also we could be freed from mocking and caricaturing and demonizing them. Jesus takes on the pride and the fear that divide us. And he nails them to the cross. And his own body was broken so he could bring us together. So today, if you look at your past and you're like me and you say, man, I've fallen short. Maybe you've rejected God as king. There's certain areas of your life that are Vegas's. You're like, nope, you can't see what happens here. Or maybe you've put your hope in politics to save us. Whatever you've done, you can look at the cross and see that God came near to us to turn us around. He died for our sins. We get to remember that over communion today. That his body was literally broken so that he could make one people out of us. With Jesus, the tension in 1 Samuel 12 is resolved. Who's going to be our king? We're going to have God as king or a human king? In Jesus, we get both. Because he was a human king who was also divine. And in his birth, that we remember this season. I hope, I hope this message of peace on earth, goodwill to men resonates in your heart this season. In Jesus, in his birth, he brought God near to us. Emmanuel, God with us. And in his life, he painted pictures of what that kingdom could look like. Both by caring and loving and healing and feeding and serving. In his death, he brought us back to God by removing the wall of hostility between us. And in his resurrection, he set us forth to bring new understanding and forgiveness and dialogue to political conversations. That is what I'm charging all of us with today. When you believe the gospel and you can see him entering into your mess, it will free you to love somebody else who's messy and get involved in their mess. When your heart touches his and you become like him, you become able to love others in spite of their sin. You become hungry to understand them more fully and truly listen. And you become passionate to foster the kind of dialogue that will promote unity in the midst of diversity in our church and city. And guys, only the gospel will get us there. 
Only the gospel. Only the gospel is powerful enough to take natural enemies and bring them together as family. And only when we see his humble, loving pursuit of us while we were his enemies, only then will we be able to put down our, our guns and our microphones or our you know, keyboards and begin to love. Amen? So some brief actions, and we're going to close. What can this look like? Um, first of all, I want to challenge you guys. Be humble. That's a good, a good first step. You, you should be able to say, my political views, I, I, have, I have problems with both the left and the right, here's the bad on my side. Right, here's the good on your side. And, um, and, and be humble with that. Number two, uh, and this one I struggle with, pray as, at least as much as you criticize. If you don't like a politician or a party, do you pray for them? Didn't Jesus say, love your enemies? Bless those who curse you? Do good to those who hate you? Pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute. Find people who disagree with you and listen and learn what, what moves them to hold their position. I, guys, one of the best attitudes I think any of us can have, or just, this is just a bone, I'll throw it in here, is everyone has something to teach me. That's the attitude of humility. I can get with anyone with a very different perspective on life, and I can learn something from them. Are you teachable? Because, you know, ignorant people aren't those who don't know, but those who refuse to learn. Number three, figure out how you can honor God with how you decide on issues. I would say do this in a healthy dialogue with safe people. There are so many evils in the world we must engage. We have to engage. Last night at Trevor's concert, he sang the song, Oh Holy Night. And it, it brought me back to that verse, that verse, and I just started crying and worshiping in that verse because he says, um, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains he shall break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Like, what a hope. And then I look around at the news headlines, and uh, all oppression hasn't ceased yet. You know, slave trade, alive and well in Libya. And we talked about a ton of social issues last week, so I won't dive into it for time's sake, but I think we could name a thousand of them. That this world is not the way it's meant to be. And that's why he came. And that's why he gave his Holy Spirit to his church to make a difference. So we're called to engage. We must engage. Amen? Four, ask questions. Don't try to convince people. Don't try to argue people into your position of the kingdom of God. It never works. Love them. Listen. Ask questions. Five, remember there's bad on both sides mixed with good. We need to be Christians who are... Um, at New City, we need to have Christians on the left and the right who know their sins and idolatries of their own side, and they know the brokenness of both sides, of the left and the right, and they don't see, right, just all the bad. They see the righteousness and the goodness of God on both the left and the right. So I'm going to close with this, uh, this uh, lyric from D Derek Webb, one of my favorite songwriters. Uh, he wrote a, a song called A King and a Kingdom, which is what sermon's named after. And uh, I'll say this. Um, who's your brother? Who's your sister? He just walked past you. I think you missed her. As we're all migrating to the place where our father lives because we married into a family of immigrants. So my first allegiance is not to a flag, a country, or a man. 
My first allegiance is not to democracy or blood, but to a king and a kingdom. And that's what I hope for today. I hope our first allegiance is in God as our king. And if so, the rest of this will work out because our hearts will be subject to him as our Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, helping us do these tense talks that are so important. We, we want to be an extension of your love and grace in this city. To show San Diego your love through our life together. And that never seems harder than with these divisive issues, social and political and otherwise. So thank you for this reminder today. That when we make foolish decisions, you don't turn your back on us, but you draw near to us with patience and grace. Thank you that you sent your son to enter into this mess and to love us in the middle of it. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't wait till we got perfect, but right in the thick of our self-centered and ignorant moments, you came and you gave your life for us to bring us to back to the Father. And Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you'd help us not to be overwhelmed with the issues, but instead to be overwhelmed with the hope and the gratitude of the grace you've given us so that we can freely live that way toward others. Fill us with the willingness not to fight or to freeze or to, or to flee, but to move forward into a broken, dark culture desperately in need of you. Give us the power to walk humbly toward one another, to, to pray more, to honor you, to ask questions, and, and to listen to the answers with genuine curiosity and hunger to learn. Most of all, God, help us to remember that our hope is in you, that every political party will have good and bad, and every political party will end. They have shelf lives. And every kingdom on this world that's ever existed has ended but your kingdom still stands. Thank you for this opportunity to connect with you this morning. Speak to us as we come and partake in communion and remember your love for us, to remember that you were broken and your body was divided on that cross so that you could remove the hostility that divides us and bring us together as your body here on the earth. I pray that you would give us humble hearts today in Jesus' name, amen.